Hey guys, welcome, welcome to another episode. Hello, hello, hello. Oh, tonight, tonight we have a distinguished guest. And when I distinguish, distinguish, because I'm going through the bio, I'm like, I got to abbreviate this, and it's still long. So tonight, our guest is Dr. Eric Mitchell. He has an MA, FACPE, and a CPE. A lot of acronyms, but just to go through this, Dr. Mitchell is presently the president and medical director of Hemp Commodity Industries, LLC, and the medical director and creator of Vitamin CBD product line. Dr. Mitchell was highly recruited out of DeMoth High School out of Hayesville, Maryland, coached by the Hall of Fame Morgan Wooden. He earned his bachelor's degree in biology from then St. Jo- uh, Joseph's College of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, while playing Division I basketball for the team. He made two appearances in NCAA tournaments. He was selected MVP in the Liberty Bell Classic. He was a sports medicine team, a sports medicine team physician for the Penn Quakers for three years. Received his doctorate of medicine degree from Perlman School of Medicine, University of Penn. Dr. Mitchell completed two fellowships, orthopedic research under Carl T. Bington, uh, MD, PhD, and was selected as the primary research paper of electrical induced osteogenesis as the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons. Dr. Mitchell was also a 30 is also a 30 year member of the Urban League and a member of the Quarter Century Club. He has a military that span experience spanned 23 years, which began with direct commission to the Pennsylvania National Guard, and which where he moved to the captain to the highest field grade officer. And he's also authored a book called The Flow of Life, Keeping the Dream Alive, which was published by Arthur House. And not to uh, mention also to mention, I'm sorry, that he's also had some research papers also published. Dr. Mitchell. I had to say I had abbreviated because it was at least two pages. And, my God, you have so much wealth of information to share with us. And then we want to thank you for joining us tonight. I want to thank you for the invitation. And the only reason that you read so much of the history is because I'm so old. <laughs> so that's, what, that's why you had to go through all of that. And thank you. It's, uh, it's a nice walk down memory lane. Thank you. My God, you've accomplished more than some people have in a lifetime. It's a blessing to know that someone like yourself with such knowledge and experience that can help the future. The information is key. And uh, this is what we have to do. We have to disseminate this information. And if we don't do it, we live in a microcosm of ignorance. So let's go. Yes, let's go. Just to start off, basically with your background and your experience, during the time that you were achieving all these um, accreditations and experience, I mean, there was not that many men of color that were probably in the field where you were heading into, were there? opportunity and my opportunity was based on uh, me standing on the shoulders of other people that preceded me mm-hmm. and I was the only third Afro-American to finish in the orthopedic program at the University of Pennsylvania yes. but the two other guys before me blazed the trail and uh, hopefully I help and hopefully some of the young people coming along will stand on my shoulders and follow in my suit I was the very first sports medicine fellow at the University of Pennsylvania because it was it was a time. It was a time, and because of my sports background, it was a natural habitat for me to uh, to transition to. It's about timing, and it was the perfect timing, and no more than anybody else. I stink and I bleed. I tell people all the time, I stink and I bleed, and that makes me no different than the, all the people that are listening to this podcast tonight. Understood, understood. So 
tell us, how did you um, decide that the orthopedic was the field for you? Again, when I got to St. Joe's then college, now university, they asked me, give us some synopsis of what you want to do. I said, I want to be a bio major, pre-med. I want to go to medical school, and I want to help take care of athletes. And that was pre the word sports medicine. But President Kennedy actually set up a, the Council on Physical Fitness in 1960. And I was a young man, and, and we understood that physical fitness was the, the key to a lifestyle. Mm-hmm. And so I accepted that lifestyle and was able to participate in a very high level of of sports, competitive sports, that got me uh, sent to any college in the United States of America. And I selected St. Joe's, then then college, now university, and went on to be a pre-med program, graduated in my biology as a biology major, went on to the University of Pennsylvania, graduated from there in medical school, stayed on for my double fellowships, my internship, my residency, and I was forced to go to work. I was forced to, after all that, to go and get a job, (laughs) and I started, (laughs) I know, (laughs) I started a practice in sports medicine and created the Sports Medicine and Neurological Institute in Philadelphia. Wow. Wow. That's just amazing. Now, what challenges were you facing during that time? I, I could only imagine that you were, what, 18, 19 when you started? In- uh, eight, 18, 19. I'm not quite that old. 18, 18 19. Uh, I'm not sure what the, what the reference of 18, 19. No, your age. Oh, no. When you, were in, when you were in college, you were like a 19-year-old. You just came out of high school. You were going through all oh, the... I was an 18-year-old when I went to college. And, and then I went to medical school, graduating from medical school. Like I said, residency is another seven years uh, with double fellowships. And then um, I was 33, 34 years old when I came out and opened my practice in, in Philadelphia and started treating my treating my patient, my patients that I, that I treated. And I, I ran my practice for, for over 30, 37 years. And um, then I finished up. But I think we really want to get to the beginning of the story. And the beginning of the story was once I finished medical school, I became a postdoctoral fellow in research. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't my additional aim, but it was part of the PIN program. And so I wanted to do this program called Electrically Induced Osteogenesis yes. because I had been studying it, and it was revolutionary. And we ran the largest non-union clinic in the world. People from all over the country and the world came to get this treatment for fractures that wouldn't heal. And that's what we're going to talk about tonight. We're going to talk about how, Nina, you asked that critical question. How did I get involved with with cannabis? And it goes back to bone stimulation. Mm. And so we're going to tie those two things together as we proceed through this interview. But I'll let, I'll give the, I'll give the wheel back to to you. Yeah. So let's talk about that exactly for the, Listeners, what is osteogenesis exactly? Osteogenesis is a bone growth, making bone stimulation, and it gets down to the to the core. Bone stimulation is critically important in maintaining bone health. And if you don't have bone stimulation, you can't get your fractures to heal. If you don't get bone stimulation, then you get a certain amount of retardation. As we get older, and I've presented this at, at, at several national medical conferences, the largest problem of the 21st century, Nina, will be osteoporosis. Mm. And I say that it's the largest public health problem because by 2030, we could have a, a large proportion of our hospital beds with women 
with fractured hips. Yes. Now, that's because as we age, we lose our bone mass. And if we don't find a way to stimulate the bone, then it becomes, you can put so much in and you take so much out. If you take out more than you put in bone production, then you get something called osteopenia. Osteopenia, which means a little bit of loss of bone mineralization, you go to something called osteoporosis. And when you go to osteoporosis, you're losing a substantial amount of bone mass. And because of the lack of bone stimulation, and then what you do is you make the bone very brittle, okay, very porous, and the bones break, whether it be your lumbar spine and your back, or whether it be your wrists and, and your and your tib and your bones in, in the upper arm or your hips. And this is was a research in seventy five, nineteen seventy five, and this is the the transformation of the metamorphosis that we know that CBD, and we're going to get to that, and that might be the introductory word, has bone-stimulating capabilities for the CB2 receptors. Now, I told you the whole secret there, but we'll have to explain it in depth. I'll let you lead the way. Wow. Now, with this procedure that you're stating, is there a timeline in a sense of age that it will be applicable? Because yeah. I know that after a certain age, your body may not respond. Like you said, when you reach in your 70s, 80s, you lose bone mass. Like, irre- like irreversible type of thing. Yeah. What happens is it's a hormone, hormonally um, balanced. Mm. It's a hormonal balance. And when women in particular go through menopause, mm-hmm. they lose their estrogen. And when they do so, they can lose up to 3 to 4% of calcium per year. So let's hypothetically take a woman 50 years old. That becomes metaplausal. And and she goes for 20 years. Okay, 20 times 4 is what? And so if she lost 4% of bone mass per year times 20 years, she's lost 80% of her bone mass. Mm. And, and uh, yes, that's very devastating. What they do is they break their hip and fall. Yes, exactly. They don't, they, they don't fall and break their hip. They break their hip and fall mm-hmm. because of the angle of the hip is at 135 degrees. And you put that weight of the pelvis on that hip, it breaks into the intertrophenteric region. Now, that put my kids through school because we have people doing it every day. We have the aging population. This happens every day. Yeah. Okay. And where people will break their hips, they come in. And we would, we have great advances in my 40, 50 years of medicine it's we can get people in and out of the hospital now much quicker. We almost call it drive by because we can hit fix, fix that hip, get them up the next day, and get them out of the hospital the day after that. When I was training 50 years ago, we would, they would be in the hospital seven to ten days, no longer. This procedure replace hip replacement, or is that sometimes it's just that that's not an option? Prevention, prevention is the best thing that we can do. Okay. An ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. Okay. And we're going to have to start talking a little bit about the CB2 receptors in the bone that was ignored, not studied, or appreciated for 70-plus years because there was a moratorium on hemp that vilified, ostracized, and criminalized it. So... We couldn't learn it very well in medical school. Yeah. Medical schools weren't going to teach something that was a federal crime. Of course, yes. Yes, yes we, are, we, are, we are very makes well sense. aware of that. <laughs> we are very well aware. Makes sense. Yeah. Sad, but makes sense. 
So, so mm-hmm. do please explain that then the CB2 receptors as it relates to the bone. I think that we've jumped. I've jumped to the end end game of trying to stimulate the, and we have research going on right now to see how we can modulate that. But we got to back way up. We got to back way up, please, and to the to why cannabis and TBL became the bad boy. Okay. Okay. We're all ears. Of cannabis and TBL was a uh, has been around for eight thousand years. And it's been a botanical that has many medical implications. And in the early 1800s, and actually in 1900s, the physicians out of Britain went to India. And India was much more of a traditional medicine, and they learned a lot. I say traditional, I'm talking about Eastern medicine versus the traditional Western medicine that I was trained in. I was trained as an allopathic MD medical physician that was based on disease, disease and on systems, okay? Heart disease, lung disease, GI disease, neurological disease. That was the basis of which we learned. Now, that medicine has changed over the time. Now we're much more preventive in that, in that framework, but we go back to Eastern medicine, and doctors out of Britain trained in uh, India learned about cannabis, and they brought that to the United States in the early 1900s, and cannabis was put into our pharmacopoeia in in 1827. So we used it as a medicine in 1827, and from 1827, it was good. It was in our medicine cabinets and the likes. Now, what happened in 1906, was the fact that there was a big safety factor going on and cannabis was then listed as a poison. And in 1906, enlisted as a poison, you had to put a big red bold letters on any any bottle or any formulation that you did that hemp was in this product and it was considered a a poison. Now, why? I'm not sure. But go to 1912 when the first opioid convention, and they made it a narcotic. Yep. Wow. Okay. And so then it became more demonized and politicized and ethnically directed. After the 1925 opioid convention, they started classifying toxicities with drugs. Opioids were attached to the Chinese because the Chinese used it as one of their medicine pieces. Oh, wow. In, 19, in 1930, they criminalized it or they ostracized it because they were using cannabis. They were saying that cannabis was the, the bad component. And they really made it an immigration act with the passage of the 1937 Marijuana Tax Act. So it was really thrown around. It was really had a rough ride. Okay, in, in the back of the trailer or the covered wagon or the police car, it had a bad ride. It was always getting demonized. And then finally criminalized in 1970 when President Nixon made it a Schedule One drug. It made it a Schedule One drug, which became a federal crime. Then they criminalized it and in doing so monetized it and it became a favorite subject of, for black and brown people to be incarcerated. Yes. 
Yes, definitely. A weapon. Well, it was a new Jim Crow situation. So this plant has been under the microscope for a long time. And then they have changed whether they've had a problem. When I say they, societies had a problem deciding whether cannabis sativa to L was a one plant or two. And and three different times up until 2018, the plant went back and forth to become hemp to marijuana, hemp to medical cannabis, hemp. It went back and forth. And what it is, one plant that now been designated by the 2018 Farm Bill Mm -hmm. as one plant that's determined by virtue of the proportion or the relative amount of THC. THC, what the hell is THC? THC is 9-delta-tetrahydrocannabinol oil. And it is because of the psychogenic component. They want to make it a narcotic. They want to make it a poison. They want to make it all these bad things. However, the Farm Bill of 2018 says that if it was less than 0.3% by weight in the field, in dry weight, that it would be classified as yeah. hemp. Yep. Many yep. years ago, it was called industrial hemp. Yes. But now it's called hemp. So that's what I principally deal in is hemp because of the legality. It's 100% legal now. And I wrote in my most recent uh, article that I wrote yesterday that if you haven't gotten it, you'll get it. And it's called the endocannabinoid system to be or not to be. That is the question. Now, that's actually a phrase from Hamlet from 1806. But is it to be or is it not to be? That is really the question that I try to answer as I go through the total history where we are and bring us up to the 21st century. And we say that it is to be because it has so many medicinal capabilities because we now know that the endocannabinoid system, that's a big fancy word, I call it short for short, I call it ECS, is a neurotransmitter, is a homeogenetic neurotransmitting system that's responsible for more than 200 different neurotransmitting components in our body. Uh, Wealth of information there. I think about it and wonder why it's the powers that be why they decide we're going to attack this we don't want anybody to have access to it and then years later we're finding out that if we would had access to this earlier how much things would have been different especially for the health of people you can postulate that question and when you get the answer give me a call (laughs) because there because it's probably still rooted and followed the money because you have to understand that in uh, ninth, with the repealing of prohibition and the creation of the Federal Narcotic Bureau, there was a guy named Harry Anslinger. And Harry Anslinger was the first, okay, drug czar. And they didn't have alcohol to bastardize anymore because prohibition had been rep- repealed. And Harry thought that cannabis made, if women got hold of it, if white women got hold of it, they would be sexually driven to Latino and black men. So they really made it a, a immigration and, and racial component. Harry Anslinger said that it made, it made blacks and Latin, darkies. He called us darkies. He made darkies and Latinos 
okay, okay, to, to the white woman. And so they use their race card. Simply, it's as simple as that. And they did, uh, if you haven't seen Reef of Madness, oh, yes. which was a 1930-something church film, they were trying to tell their people to stay away from this drug. It was habit. It was, they didn't say habit-forming then. So that was President Reagan uh, and President Nixon on the war on drugs, that it was habit-forming. And they used to take an egg and break over a hot Oh, yes, I remember that in high school. And say, this is your brain on drugs. And so that's when President Nixon made it a federal crime by virtue of a presidential executive order that made it a Schedule One drug. He aligned it with opium and cocaine. And having no, no medicinal purpose. effect. No, no medical no, me- no, no medical relevance. Yeah, no, it's horrible. Absolutely not. Yeah. Okay, and you, when you had that, the, the bully pulpit, I think we, we know it as today, mm-hmm. you can do things that are irrational. And they call it rational. And the AMA, okay, now the Marijuana Tax Act, interesting, was passed on August the 1st, 1937 at midnight. And Harry Anslinger told a big lie. He said that the AMA was in favor of it. And the AMA was not. And I would tell you in 1970, when President Nixon signed the C, the, the Controlled Substances Act, he said that the AMA was in favor with it for it, and the committee that he formulated said no, and the AMA said no. But money talks, and everybody else walks. Wow, that's true. So okay, now you have to understand another piece of this is that there are two parts to the plant, and the the plant was illustrated on the back of the ten dollar American bill in 1910. Yep, the ten dollar bill was graced with the hemp harvest being being taken down it was part of our major pharmacolo- farm, farming ethos our ethos is, is it, it's been it's been with us since the pilgrims landed on Plymouth Rock they were mandated to grow him why because our constitution was written on it because Betsy Ross American flag was made from it the clothes were made from it the animal beds were made from it the animals used it Okay, there are more than 50,000 utilizations for him. I can see why. I I want that to sink in for a second. But you just can take just a little microcosmic piece of it and make it illegality and give it illegality and people will run like hell. Yes, I'm seeing that. And and they did that during the 60s and 70s. They, They called them stoners. They called them tree huggers. Okay, it was obviously from Woodstock. Oh, yes, the hippies. But, yeah, yeah. So it got that reputation, and it stayed in our pharmacopoeia until 1940 now. In other words, Park Davis had more than 43 different preparations of cannabis sativa L in our medicine cabinet. But it wasn't, but it was the plant. It was the other part of the plant. It was the male portion of the plant that was also basically attack now the male portion of the plant is when you when you seed the female when you fertilize the female you make seeds and you do not get a resin and i as a orthopedic surgeon i went from orthopedic surgeon to hemp farmer and we had to cut out every male out of the field if a male showed up in the field they had to cut it out because if the male 
put out his pollen, the females had their little sticky little uh, follicular fingers up to get fertilized. And if they got fertilized, they create seeds and not resin, R-E-S-I-N, resin. And that resin is what we use as medicine today that even has an FDA-approved drug called Epidiolex. Oh, yes. Oh. We're very aware of okay. That. okay. You might be familiar. So this is where it's complexing because they didn't hemp. When, in 1937, when they wrote the Marijuana Tax Act, they were after, they weren't really after the THC component. They were really after the fiber component. Yes, I agree. Because I remember, didn't Henry Ford make the first hemp car? 1941, he made an all-hemp composite car. They couldn't dent it with a, with a sledgehammer. Yes, correct. I remember seeing that video. Okay, and what they did is they did not want hemp in the fields because they were a number of different people like William Randolph Hearst, who was a mega millionaire, and he had all of the farm, all of the forests and the paper mills. And because, see, one acre of hemp in 120 days can give you as much fiber as an acre of timber can in, in 20 years. So it takes 20 years to get an acre of, of fiber out of a, a forest. It takes 120 days to get it out of a field. What a difference. And, and that was that was absolutely dangerous. And there was another component, competing component, in something called the cotton gin. That had institutionalized cotton. And they didn't want a, a fabric that was twice as strong, that was stronger and more durable. Because you understand that you go out and buy hemp clothing now that's much more durable, much more long-lasting than cotton. Now, the other part of that also wasn't it very competitive against, I think, was it? I'm thinking wood or, you know, fiber of wood. We're building homes either concrete or brick that the fiber from hemp was two to three times stronger and lasts longer and expandable and it also can withstand heat? Well, it doesn't really do either. Mm-hmm. And if you go down to Louisiana, to Texas, you have, every year you have what's known as a hurricane season. Mm-hmm. And Einstein says if you keep doing the same thing over year after year and ask for a different result, it's called insanity. <laughs> it's just... And we've been practicing insanity. It's called something. It's, it's a product called hemp, hempcrete. Yes, yes. Hempcrete is made of the fibers, lime, and water, and it is twice as strong as concrete. One half the weight and does not melt it. And one of the reasons that they have to strip off everything when the when these when the um, building material gets wet is because of mold and mildew. Okay, so you know I have been working with the University of Maine Composite Center, and Dr. Doggett, Dr. Habib Doggett, is the medic, is the director, executive director there. Yeah, I think he's not. I don't think he has one PhD. I think he has two. And when I went to see him for the very first time, he had shit wood on the conference table when I walked in. And so there, the, these fibers are stronger and, and longer than wood fibers. And it's going, to replace, it's going to replace something called grafting. In the next couple of years, next three to five years, it will replace something called grafting, which is very expensive, okay, rare, rare element. And we're going to move to the fiber of cannabis and be able to take uh, the mileage of our 
automobile batteries from 200 or 300 miles to 1,000 miles. Wow. To make these super capacitors? Yeah, absolutely. You, you ain't seen nothing yet. Right. Dr. Mitchell is like, I'm blown away by, by your wealth of knowledge. So I know you said you in school, you didn't, obviously, we didn't, you didn't learn about this. How did you spark an interest? And how did this all start for you? That's a good question. Yeah, one of the things that I was very careful in my orthopedic practice was to limit the amount of opioids that I gave my post-operative patients. About 78, 76 or 78% of the uh, narcotic overdose deaths that occur in the United States start in doctor's offices. Because now, can you imagine, Nina, she's a situation. Mary is a friend of yours. It's a hypothetical. She goes to the doctor and the doctor sees her, evaluates her, and sends her home without a prescription. And Mary calls you. Mary says, Nina, I went to the doctor today, and he told me to do X, Y, and Z. And do you know he didn't even give me a prescription? <laughs> we are prescription-based. We want, when we leave, we want to get a pill. You yeah. want to leave with something. Yeah, people, yeah. 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 And so look at the people that, that have these problems. They take the pill so that they can, can override the, the norm. They have diabetes, and so what they do is they take something to counteract that rise in sugar so they can have that piece of apple pie. So we, we are we are utterly amazing. But it was that opioid epidemic, Nina, that really drove me to start studying this plant to, to, a, to a large extent. But you have to understand that as a physician, I could not do anything with cannabis as long as I had my DEA license, and that's the Drug Administration, okay, that gives us the ability to write for schedules for scheduled drugs. There are five classifications of scheduled drugs: Schedule One, which you can't write for; Schedule Two, Three, Four, and Five. And most of the drugs that we write for are Schedule Two and Schedule Three. And and they started doing something an opioid that they moved L the Schedule Three drugs up to Schedule Two. Now, Schedule One drugs cannot be prescribed. That's opium, opioid, cocaine, and and cannabis, along with some of the other psychedelic components. So we have to, in order to, to prescribe opioids or the narcotics or barbiturates, we have to have what's known as a narcotic license. Now, physicians cannot cannot touch cannabis, but cannabis. But we can touch and we can do a lot more because now hemp has been de- decriminalized since December 20th of 2018 when they passed the Farm Bill of 2018. When the Farm Bill of 2018 was passed and signed to law, hemp, any, any cannabis sativa L with less than 0.3% by dry weight of THC was now classified as hemp and now classified as legal. Anything more than that was called medical cannabis, and the favorite word they want to use is marijuana. Dr. Mitchell, this is a wealth of information, but we have to take continue this conversation because we're at our point. Is it all right if you come back to our show and continue this conversation? Oh, we do a part two. Be, it'll be my absolute pleasure. There's a lot more. There's a lot more to say. Yes. If you give me more time, I'm, I'm going to take it. It'll be my pleasure. Oh, we're definitely going to do that. Please. Uh, we really appreciate having you, Dr. Mitchell, and we're looking forward to having you back on. Thank you. Okay. Ladies and gentlemen, um, stay tuned for part two because this is really fascinating um, and in-depth, and we're looking forward to continuing our conversation with Dr. Mitchell. Thank you. Thank you.
I'm Josh Kincaid, Capital Markets Analyst and host of your Cannabis Business Podcast, The Talking Hedge, and newest member on PodCon X. So come on over and check out The Talking Hedge. We talk about business news, interviews, investments, events, all that stuff. So come nerd out with me over at The Talking Hedge. You can find me at the Talking Hedge podcast.com or on all your favorite podcast platforms don't forget to like share and subscribe or don't and i'm out thanks for listening to today's show to check out more great cannabis podcasts go to podconnects.com here's a preview of one of our other shows Hey friends, I'm Brandon and I'm Saba and we are your host of the Cannabis Hangout podcast, an educational platform to connect with the cannabis community and share personal stories while breaking the stigma of marijuana. Join us every Sunday at 7 p.m. to gain valuable insight with different perspectives from industry leaders, growers and medical marijuana patients. This is a place to learn so much from different angles in the cannabis industry. So tune in while we break it all down.